thank you for taking the time to listen to this life-changing message from the ministry of Faith Bible Chapel. We hope this message will encourage you in all parts of your life. At the end of this message, you will hear more information on how to contact our church family, as well as directions for you to visit us for any of our worship services. Until then, join us for the service in progress. I want to talk to you about the plan of God. The plan of God. Now in Acts chapter 6, if you're looking at your Bible, I'm just going to glance at a few verses in chapter 6, 7, and 8 as this story comes out. The story comes out of a young man by the name of Stephen. Stephen was raised up in the church, and he had to be somewhat maybe in his 20s, maybe even younger than that. But as he's raised up, Acts chapter 6 and verse 8 tells us that Stephen was full of faith and power and did great wonders and signs among the people. We're told in verse 10 that they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit of of Stephen. So God obviously anointed this young man, put a calling on his life, raised him to a position of leadership, put him out in the front of public because he had a purpose for his life. And he was using him. Chapter 7, we're told then that Stephen begins to preach a gospel. And the, the way, the, the place that he was put in is that for doing what he did, he was, he was pulled before the council. And to give an account, to, to answer some questions, why do you believe this Jesus? Why are you preaching this Jesus? They're actually challenging him. But he takes advantage of the opportune moment and he begins to elaborate on the gospel beginning with Abraham all the way through the Old Testament up until that moment revealing that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the promised Redeemer of Israel and the world. Now I'm sure that Stephen's thinking when he's standing before the council of one of his brothers named Peter. And it was only a couple chapters before this that Peter also found himself standing before the crowds and the public, and he also gave testimony very similar to what Stephen was doing. And we know, too, he was pulled before the council, and he was put into prison. And and think with me, if you will, that Stephen might have had this on his mind, is, man, I'm kind of in the same situation, but he's remembering that God moved in a miraculous way for Peter. He even delivered him from the prison doors uh, miraculously by angels, and he was free to go back and preach the gospel. And do you wonder or even think that maybe Stephen is thinking, hey, I'm going through this, but God's going to show up and he's going to do miracles. And what do we have happen? Instead of God showing up like he thought he might show up, it wasn't that God wasn't there, Stephen is drug outside and he's stoned to death. Young man, promising career, filled with power in the Holy Spirit, just ready to hit the streets and give it all for Jesus. He already committed his life to do this, and then his life is snuffed, crushed by stones, hitting his head all the way down to his toes, bloodied. There, right? What happened? What do you think the other disciples were thinking? God, where did you go? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be more dynamic, more 
powerful, more miraculous happening. God, why didn't you do the same for Stephen as you did for Peter? Lord, you heard our prayers then. Where, where did you stop listening to our prayers? These probably questions that were in their minds at this time. Questions that each and every one of you and I personally wrestle with all the time. And yet there are thousands of stories like Stephen that are recorded and we could rehearse before you today that have happened over the last 2,000 years. Persecution, suffering, trials by believers going through it. People of faith, people of power, people with promising careers ahead of them, anointed, gifted people, and yet we find them dying, or some disease takes hold of them, we wonder, we question. Just recently, and I say recently, in the last less than a hundred years, there was another similar incident that what was happening to Stephen happened to a group of missionaries, five missionaries. Five missionaries who themselves in their 20s and 30s, finishing college, had a vision in their heart, were excited about the future. God was leading them to preach the gospel to, to all people. They had identified an area in Ecuador where they were going to go. They were faithful to the calling. They studied. They prepared themselves. They went there in 1952, 1953 to learn the Spanish language and learn the ways of the tribal people because their focus was going to be on the tribes the unreached peoples, not the major cities, but going back into the jungle. They identified one particular group, Wadani tribe, that they were going to reach with the gospel or try to reach with the gospel. And as they prayed about that, as they strategized about this, they, they finally had an opportunity that came their way by a pilot who was flying a missionary plane and saw the Wadani people and, and they, they saw a, a landing strip, a possible landing strip along a river, the Curare River, that they could land their plane. So they decided in 1956 to launch out, and here was their opportunity to spread the gospel. Young men. They even took their wives and their children with them that were all sacrificing, giving it all up for Jesus. They were going to do something. The men decided that they were going to land there and they were going to establish a base. They had, they had made some contact. The way they made contact is by dropping supplies down to the Wadanis. And so they were establishing some kind of uh, friendship, a means to communicate, to get an open door. And they thought by dropping these supplies, and it, it did work. And there were, there were a couple that, that came and began to converse with them on those first days. And, and after they left, they had, they had come back. And they, these missionaries who were there on that beach of that river saw them coming and were excited. They thought, oh, they're coming. And they actually were walking out of the jungle. And as they ran toward them in the river, all of a sudden they heard the cries of the warriors of the Wadani tribe with spears in their hand coming to attack them. They had guns, but they had made a commitment to one another that they were not going to use their guns. They said, how could we use our guns to take someone's life if they don't know Jesus Christ? 
The end result was they were all speared to death. Died. Promising careers, vision in our heart, trusting in the grace and the power of God to see them through and do all that. And yet their lives were snuffed out. In a very short period of time, there were several films that were made as a result of this. And what you might not know is that one of those films was entitled The End of the Spear. And The End of the Spear was produced and was directed by a young man who grew up in our young adult ministry. His name was Jim Hanan. He came and he met another young girl in our young adult ministry. They married, and then God called them to get into this film business, a great gifted, talented, artistic young man. And he lived down there in the jungle to, to really acquaint himself with the ways and then produced that film, End of the Spear. You ought to see it sometime or get it. Look it up and get it. So seemingly at that particular time, but what happened is in 1958, just a couple years after they were killed, one of the wives, Elizabeth Elliot of Jim Elliot, who was speared to death, decided to go back, taking their young daughter back to the Wadanis with the same vision in their heart to win them to Christ. And they did. Hundreds of them came to know Christ. And one young man at that time who was one of the warriors who was attributed to actually spearing to death two of those missionaries came to know Christ as their Savior. He was born again. He put a call on his life and he became an elder and a pastor in the church down there in Ecuador. To God be the glory. That, that young tribal man was actually in our church and spoke in our church about that experience and him coming to the Lord. Their death sparked a missionary interest like no other time in that century. And literally, others were motivated to go out and do missionary work. Funds begin to come into missionary organizations to help back and send other missionaries out. So what they thought had died on the banks of that river actually sparked a revival and a spiritual awakening to a group of people that were not reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have this explained to us, Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. But there, there's something that happened too that's very similar, something that happened 2,000 years ago that I just related to you through these missionary journeys. As Stephen was being martyred and as he being stoned to death. There was another young man that was standing there witnessing all of this. Matter of fact, almost like a leader, his name was Saul, or we know him as Paul. We're told those that were stoning Stephen took their clothes and put them at the feet of Paul, and maybe he even held some of the garments so that they, their outer garment they could take off so they were able to throw the rocks that eventually killed Stephen. So Paul, filled with anger and filled with not only anger but a zeal to do what he thought was right at that time, was persecuting the early church. But he went on to become one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known. And we have today the epistles because of Paul. So you have this thing going on, this dichotomy of things that are going on, excitement about salvation and yet persecution and suffering and pain and trials that, are, that the early church were facing, struggling with, trying to navigate through 
them and put them in perspective like we do each and every day. So I want to talk to you today, and here's the subject I want to talk to you about. The pain of the world and the purposes of God. The pain of the world and the purposes of God. The question is certainly, I'm sure we've all entertained at one time or another, at least I know I have dozens of time, why a world so filled with pain? Just, you don't have to go back very long. And as these thoughts and this subject of pain and suffering and trials, I was faced with to put together a message for us that would be helpful. I, I begin to think, and only recently, I didn't have to go back very far. Matter of fact, I only had to go back about a year in April of 2015 where ISIS had killed dozens of Ethiopian believers, beheaded them. By the way, Ethiopian was one of the first believers that Philip led to the Lord who took the gospel to Ethiopia, and now Ethiopian believers are being beheaded for the gospel's sake. And before that, there were Egyptian believers that were also massacred for the gospel. We read stories of people being thrown overboard in the Mediterranean Sea. I'm not talking about 2,000 years ago. I'm talking about in the last couple of years even to this day. Along with the persecution, there's that awareness that the pain in our world that's created because there are earthquakes. And just within the last years, we read of earthquakes that killed over 2,400 people. Can you imagine just wiping out a recent one in Japan that has killed thousands of people? And I think about Stephen, I think about the persecution, I think about the trials, and there are a couple questions that sprung up in my mind. We say that Jesus Christ is Lord. We identify him as Lord over all, Lord over our lives. And we intend to mean by that that he is supreme, that he is sovereign. That he controls all and he's sovereign over all. And, and that's what we sing about and that's what we really intend to believe. But I wonder if we really thought that through. Because I found myself separating in my own mind and heart this understanding of God. Yes, he's Lord over all. Does that mean he's Lord over earthquakes? Does that mean he's Lord over beheadings? Does that mean he's Lord over hurricanes and other types of persecution? Or, or what? do you do what I do? And I, I, I kind of had this, not a total understanding of, is he really Lord over all things? Our world is complex, isn't it? And what I mean by that, you have, it's beautiful at times and it's horrible at times. And I thought even to use that word, what, how come the pastor's being so negative? It's beautiful at times, and at times it's a horrible place. It wasn't too long ago, just weeks, maybe a couple months now, that I was driving up north 
And uh, it was on one of those days that the night before there was a snow that had come down on the Rocky Mountains. And yet this was a beautiful, gorgeous, sunny, blue sky day. And as I'm looking from about 120th and Pecos or Federal, I'm looking toward the west and the mountains. And, and they standing out. It's like they popped out with this snow covering and beautiful Rocky Mountains. And I'm looking at that. I thought, what a beautiful place to live. And at the same time, news is on the radio of a bomb that is thrown in the middle of a park while believers are celebrating Easter, women and children are killed, and we support a missionary right there in Pakistan. So you have the beautiful, the beauty of the mountains and what we enjoy in life, and then you have the horrible happening. Horrible and beautiful. Just in the last couple of weeks, I've had four funerals. I have another one this Friday. I got news Friday, this past Friday, of a pastor in our city, Pastor John Rainey, who I knew and had fellowship with. He's a great guy, and he suffered with cancer over the last years, and there are some here that know him a lot closer than I know him. And I get news that he passes away after this struggle with cancer. And at the same time, I have a wedding <laughs> where there's great celebration. The family is all excited and, and, and you know, they're gathered together in the, the white dresses and the flowers and the celebration. And I find myself that in this, this situation where there's beauty and then there's these horrific things that are taking place. And how do we sort it out? How, how do we navigate? How do we handle this as believers in our world? 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10 tells us that there be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. How can you be sorrowful always rejoicing? If you live long enough, especially as a believer, you begin to realize and see that life is like this. And you know it's true. At one time, earlier on in my walk, I reflected that I viewed trials and pain and sufferings as occasional things that happen. So I kind of put them in that category, occasional or exceptional, so that life was, okay, yeah, it's good, it's beautiful, and I love it, and what Jesus has done, he brought me, I love it. But every once in a while, man, there's pain. Every once in a while, it's occasional. But what I found out, I've been looking at it wrong. You see, there are not good times and bad times. It's not that, that this week was a good week, but the last couple of days weren't so good. No, it's not times of good and times of bad. They are simultaneously happening. They're happening almost within minutes of each other. One moment you hear about someone who's grieving and suffering over a child that is lost. And you sorrow with that person, you grieve with that person, you talk to them on the phone, you visit them, and the next moment you know you're asked to do a wedding and you know you gotta show up and rejoice with those people who are showing off. It's not that you then have to be hypocritical. No, it's just the way it is. We, maturity is learning that life is like that. You have the simultaneous good and bad happening. As we walk through this world, weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. 
So the earlier followers of Acts were coming to this reality. It was a stark reality. It was something that they had to deal with, something they had to work out because they had to go on from there. How do they keep true to the plan of God? How do they keep true to the gospel message? How do they keep true to their Savior's words and what they know they're to go out and to preach this good news of deliverance and a Messiah and of salvation at the same time seeing their own brothers and sisters being massacred or dying? It was a troubling thing for the early church. I don't think it's less troubling for us today. Why such a world? This is a big question. Every time you take a breath, four people die. It's the reality of life. Six million Jews just in the last 75 years massacred by a German dictator and Nazis. You think six million were a lot more help. You need to think of a nation less than 18 million at that time. One third of the population. Think of America. That'd be 100 million people killed out of 300 million that we have. We can't even fathom that. How do you live through something like that? 60 million people through the gulags were killed. A hundred years ago, 1.5 million Armenians are massacred. 1.5 million. It's a major city. And these are only little, little accounts of these stories. So what should we know about trials and pain and suffering? How do we, can we identify this? How can we live what we're supposed to live, victorious lives, expecting lives? What do we do? There's four things that I'd like to point out to you. Maybe it would be helpful to us. Number one is we live in a broken and a fallen world. The world we live in is broken. It's a fallen world. Where have we fallen from? We have fallen from the graces of God. Not because God initiated, but because we initiated it. To live in a fallen world means we struggle with sin on a daily basis and temptation, trials of our faith. To live in a fallen world means we experience heartache and pain, sometimes brought on by ourselves, but most of the time by someone else or just our surroundings, the very fact that we live in this world. We witness natural disasters and staggering losses. We're witnesses to the injustices, the inhumanity, the discord and trouble that are commonplace among people. You think we should have advanced past that. And it's all because we fell from our original position in the Garden of Eden. And we know now because of that falling, all the creation groans under the consequences of sin. Romans chapter 8 and verse 22, we know that all creation is growing in, groaning in what? Pain. This wasn't God's original plan, but it happened. And here, let me explain a little bit what happened. There's, a, there's this physical picture we have. It, it, it can be very graphic at times. 
and, and it's a visual of something that's deeper than what's happening in the physical realm. It goes to the moral decay and its results. It's not just a story. We think of Adam and Eve, and we think of the story of the Garden of Eden, and then in that garden, and they eat of this tree, an apple, so we show an apple, and we tell our kids, and we think of the story, but have you thought to the depths of its understanding of really what happened then? The moral decay that set in that brought this kind of destruction on our world? So it's not just a fairy tale, it's not just a good story, it's not just a story, something deeper was happening. Adam took a position. And Eve, they took a position, and here was the position. It was a position against God. It actually was a slap in the face to a holy God, to a loving God, to a caring God. It was saying, I don't trust you anymore to provide for my life, God. I think I know what is best for my life, and I'd rather take control from this point on. I reject your love. Yeah, it was that horrible. I reject your love. I reject your wisdom and counsel. I will do it my way. It was a position. It attacked. It was a kick in God's gut that after providing all in the dreams that he had for mankind, for this to happen, how many of us are wounded when one of our children just walk away from our counsel? Reject our love. How many people have you known who you've tried to reach out to and they just reject it? Now before moving to the next point, there are certainly some verses that give us some hope here. And they're found in Romans. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 says this. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So we, we get a picture that there are sufferings. We consider that there are sufferings, but, but there's going to be a change. Something's going to happen. It's not going to last forever. Verse 21 says, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Even though the world groans now, there's coming a day. And that hope lies in that day that there's going to be a deliverance. Verse 24 says, for we are saved in this hope. This hope is, is that there is going to be a salvation. You see, we think salvation, when we accept Jesus Christ, salvation from our sin and the results of it and the shame and guilt, we think that is kind of like the end of it all. No, that's not the end of it. That's the beginning of it. And total, full salvation doesn't come to the return until the return of Jesus Christ when he delivers this world from its pain. He delivers us from our suffering and we are set free. So the fullness of our salvation is not only in the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah, that moment in the resurrection, the fullness of salvation and the fullness of our understanding is, is that there's a day in the future when I'll stand before my Lord and Savior and Redeemer and these things will be but a, maybe a memory. So our war, world has fallen and sometimes we look at a promising life like Stephen and we say, whoa. <laughs> That's my next point is this. Stephen did nothing wrong. He did nothing wrong. He did everything that he knew God was calling him to do. 
He knew that there was a special anointing came on his life. He knew that God had touched him in a powerful way. He knew that the words that he spoke were beyond his, his words. There, he knew there was something divine. There was something supernatural about it. He was on this spiritual high of moving out for God. So he was doing exactly what God called him to do. He was preaching the gospel, the good news. But his end was different than Peter's. I totally understand all the ways of God, but, but his end was different. It was disturbing to the early church. And let me make a statement that you might want to write down, but at least remember that. You see, God sees purpose and outcome. All we see is pain and the problem. God sees purpose. God has a plan. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, a very familiar verse, but needs repeating and more deeper understanding. We know that all things work together for the good. It does not say all things are good. But it says that we know that all things work for the good. So even Stephen stoning at a young age, his passing from this world, his disappearance from the scene of someone who could have been used in a dramatic way, but yet his life snuffed out, even that was going to work for good for the spreading of the gospel, similar to the story of those five missionaries, that it did work for good. It was working together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. God has a plan. And you know what the plan and purpose was? It's for the gospel to go to all people. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, it says that Saul, who was consenting to his death at that time, Stephen, time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Now look at the results of it. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. What was the promise? What was the plan brought out in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, that you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost comes upon you, you will be my witnesses, where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the world. Could it be that something was taking place that God in his ultimate wisdom and sovereign rule over all things, could you become comfortable in Jerusalem and want to stay there? Who doesn't want to stay in the middle of a promise keeper gathering of 75,000 men with their hands lifted to the Lord? I love the bask in that. But Monday comes along. <laughs> Monday comes along. When I'm faced with the stark reality that that day I might hear some real bad news. How do I handle it? Do I maintain the same attitude and spirit of my trust in God? They were all scattered throughout the regions. So the plan and purposes of God now were, were being manifested in a greater world. It would take the gospel. The third thing I get from this is that God is God in the calm and he's God in the trial. God is God in the calm and he's God in the trial. He's still God, right? He hasn't bended his throne. He hasn't lost control. He hasn't forgotten about you. He knows all about it. You see, when you can't see him, he can still see you. 
The clouds that could gather around your life and, and darkens the sun that you don't see it any longer. Does that mean the sun's not there? My inability to see him does not stop his ability to see me. And he does. And he, he knows where you are today. What you're facing today. He knows what you're going through today. Even to the point where 2,000 years ago he prayed. He prayed for Peter and he prayed for us. And what did he pray? He said, Lord, I don't pray that you take him out of the world. Jesus knew that we were going to face persecution. He knew that we would face trials. He knew that we'd face sufferings. He said, God, I don't pray that you take him out of the world. It's too big of a plan. There are too many people who need to hear the good news. Lord, I'm not praying that you take him out. I pray that their faith should not fail. I pray for their faith, God. So what we've come to as we read Acts chapters 1 and all the way up now in 6, 7, and 8 is that we're learning, in li we're learning how to live life to the fullest with all of this understanding. God is still God. He's God in the trial and he's God in the times of rejoicing. The fourth thing is that in it all, we discover something about God and ourselves in the trials. You don't discover it on Sunday morning. I, I can teach you for 30 minutes and 40 minutes, and we can grasp, try to grasp some, at least some truths that maybe we could chew on for the rest of the week. But as we grasp those truths, they're put to practice in life, in the trial in the suffering, in the disappointments, in a spouse leaving, in a child dying, in a every situation. We discover something about God. And there's a lot to be discovered about God we don't know. But one thing I do know, he is God, he's in control. He knows What's going on? He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. you are, you're not someone that's so exceptional that you're going through something that someone else is not going through. No, we all go through the same things. Now, one thing I've learned that I'm very careful and cautious that when I address people and converse with people that I don't say I understand because I don't understand. I avoid saying I understand that. Unless there's something that I've gone through that's very similar, I can try to share some of the things and hope in the midst of that. But most, even though it's almost the same, it's never the same. And you know what I'm talking about. But I can be there to grieve and to comfort and put out an arm and share at that time. James chapter 1 and verse 2 says that my brethren, count it all joy when you go fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. See, we're learning. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Something's happening through this. Something that goes beyond sometimes what we've even imagined in our heart is that God is perfecting something that doesn't perish 
He's doing something in our character. He's doing something with our attitude. He's doing something with our life that if we allow him to do it and we're able to maintain the same amount of trust, he will be glorified even in the trial of my life and the suffering. So he's not only glorified when I'm up and excited and preaching and telling people about miracles, but he's using me and he's receiving glory when I'm able to say that through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in him. Through it all. First Peter chapter 1 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom have not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The Shadrachs, Meshach, and Abednego's were lifted to positions in the government and leadership, but then they were brought, tried, and thrown into a furnace. What did they learn about God? They said, well, maybe we could have learned continuing the way we were with successes and being elevated and things like that, having the comfortable life even in a foreign country. Where did they see Jesus? In the fire. The fourth man walked with him in the fire. Where did Daniel come to know something about God he couldn't have known outside of being thrown in the lion's den that he can stop the mouth of the lion. And God can do the same for each and every one of us. Blessed be, blessed is a man who endures temptation for when he has been approved he shall receive a crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Those five young missionaries received a crown of life. Their time was useful to God. It was used of God. I, I don't understand why one lives longer and he's used, another one dies younger. But what I do understand that God wants to be that in all things trust him. And God by his spirit is able to equip us to not only just make it, and, and, and kind of survive. Know that we can thrive in life with all its beauty and yet it's all of its horrific things that happen. Our attitude doesn't have to change from one moment to the next. Our faith doesn't have to waver like a boat or a ship on the sea. It could be level, balanced, ever moving upward waiting with great expectation of the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will gather us and deliver us from all pain and suffering. Every tear will be wiped away as we stand before our Savior. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a glorious moment, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We are kept by the power of God. We are kept with the promise of hope of his return. We're kept that our faith is being perfected, that our character, we're becoming more Christ-like. We're to take on the image of Christ, our Savior. So there's more than just hope. (laughs) There's a life to be lived to the fullest. No matter how long that life might be, you can live life to the fullest now. Because you suffer or go through a trial doesn't mean you lose your testimony. (laughs) What it does mean is that your testimony has more weight to it. Would you stand with me, please? We hope that this message has spoken something personal to you. If you would like more information about our church family or service times, please call us at 303-424-2121 or visit us at our website, www.fbci.org. Faith Bible Chapel currently meets in our Family Worship Center, located on the corner of 62nd Avenue and Ward Road.